I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not and, as um, simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. The Athletic. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. And it's brought to you excitedly this week by me, Ali Maxwell, and with me as ever, Michael Cox, the tactical writer for The Athletic, who spent this weekend watching and writing about Leicester City, about Brendan Rodgers' Foxes. And Tom Warville was at an EFL Championship game, Brentford against Barnsley, and has written all again about Brentford FC, really interesting side who we may or may not see in the Premier League next year on the Athletics site. But we're getting straight into some action this week on the podcast because we are absolutely buzzing about the return of the Champions League. The round of 16 kicks off on Tuesday night. I'm actually going to mix things up a little bit by starting this week with a quiz question or two for you guys, just to mull over. Listener, Michael, Tom, listen to this, have a think, write down your answers and we'll come to them at the end of the episode. Question one of this Champions League special quiz is who were the first two Englishmen to score in a Champions League final? Now, one key bit of information there is, of course, the rebrand from European Cup to Champions League. This is very much the first two Englishmen to score in a Champions League final. Michael writing, Tom shaking his head. Second question, before we move on and get stuck into the episode. This is a bit of a who am I? In the 2004 Champions League final between Monaco and Porto, Monaco had three forwards on the bench. Dado Perso, Shabani Nonda and one other. Now Perso and Nonda both came on in this game. They were both subbed on. But this third forward was an unused sub, a young striker who subsequently played for Real Madrid and four Premier League clubs but sadly never made it onto the pitch in a Champions League final, never appeared in one. Right, pop your answers down, guys. We'll take a look at the end of the episode to see if you've got them right. But of course, this is really just a teaser for the definitive Champions League quiz, which is on the Athletic site at the moment, put together by far better quiz masters than me. I know Michael was involved in it as well. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking. If you're listening to this and you're not a subscriber of The Athletic, head on to the site and play the quiz today tell us how you get on on twitter as well until february the 25th new subscribers will get a half price annual subscription less than one pound a week for an entire year to read everything that tom and michael and all of their colleagues are writing on site but let's get our teeth into the champions league knockout stage the round of 16 first we're going to go through each team each fixture with a tactical analytical filter on michael and tom armed and ready We'll start with Barcelona against PSG. This one's on Tuesday night. Michael, Barcelona heading into this game. Ronald Koeman, the manager, has really sort of gone round the houses this season to settle on a tactical shape. Uh, would you say he's settled now? Can we can we accurately predict how Barca will look heading into Tuesday night? Yeah, probably. I mean, he's settled on a 4-3-3 with uh, Messi deep as a central forward and, and two more... Uh, on rushing forwards going in behind from wide. So it's not a new system, really. It's the kind of system we would associate with Barcelona 10 years ago. Yeah, they do look a little bit more settled. I mean, the results show that they've won the last six, I think, in La Liga. They go into this with a little bit more momentum than they had at any stage uh, in the group phase. Yeah, the midfield is working well. I think that's, you know, over the years with Barcelona, we always think about the midfield, I think, first and foremost, because it's, you know, the area where they've, they've always uh, concentrated on. Um, they've got Frankie de Jong is I mean it's been a funny one when Coman came to Barcelona he said well I'm not going to use de Jong where he's been used before I'm going to use him where he played with Ajax and where he's played with the Netherlands which was kind of as a deep midfielder charging forward on the ball at times he's actually played as the, the most advanced really of the three central midfielders getting into goal scoring positions um, but he's done that very well 
Pedri alongside him is very neat and tidy. I think very typically Barcelona has had a really good couple of months. The concern for me is Busquets, who's, who's been okay in the league recently, but I think back to the Clasico earlier in the season that Real Madrid won 2-0, I think it was, and he his lack of mobility was very obvious. And I do worry against the real elite sides in Europe whether he'll be able to cope with that kind of test. And Tom, in terms of the numbers, I mean, the group stage numbers for Barcelona were really impressive, but... You have to take into account the level of opponent and up against PSG this time around, that is being raised significantly. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they were unbeaten in the group apart from losing to Juve in the the last um, round of matches. And yeah, it's going to be a much higher level of competition against PSG and whoever they play afterwards if they make it past the next stage. So yeah, there was always a bit of a small sample klaxon with the, the graphics and the data in this piece just because we are looking at six games and the quality of opposition is, um, is pretty different group to group but I mean Barcelona were heavily dominant possession possession in the final third um, they weren't too aggressive in their pressing they're actually ranked eighth which is obviously middle of the road for for Champions League sides when we look at PPDA but they were taking the most shots as well so um, yeah I'm excited to see how they're tested against PSG I'd agree with Michael that Busquets is is definitely a bit of a question mark especially with uh, the speed that PSG have that you know they'll be using and probably playing on the counter and uh trying to make the most of transition situations if this is going to be kind of a classic Pochettino PSG side but I'm excited to see how Serginho Dest at right back and um, Ronald Araujo at right centre back plays that is a uh, kind of relatively new look Barcelona right inside of defence and you know we've been very used to seeing um, very different players there in the past so that's the one area where they're I guess a bit more inexperienced it'll be interesting to see if if PSG try and target that. Fair to say it's a concern for the fan base. I enjoyed a Barca fan in the comments of your piece saying there's no chance we don't concede at least six goals over the two legs here. So really heading into that with some positivity. Uh, Michael, are PSG a classic Poch team? As Tom just said, uh, they're not top of league, aren't heading into this, of course, but they have won six of their last seven in that competition. How are they shaping up? Yeah, difficult to tell. I've seen a couple of their games under uh, Pochettino. I mean, they're, they're, they're quite compact. They look well organised, but they're just, it's difficult to judge. I mean, at the weekend, uh, they beat Nice and they played a 4-2-3-1 that had Moise Kane on the right wing. And that's, I just can't imagine them doing that in the Champions League. I, I, I could be wrong. It could be bold. You could try and attack Barcelona more than we would expect. But it's just, it's such a step up from Liga into the Champions League. I think probably more so than any other side. Well, I guess Porto actually are in the same situation. But PSG are just so dominant in the league. I think they end up using tactics for individual games that we won't see in the Champions League. But yeah, they, they look they look decent. The Neymar absence is obviously a big thing. He's, he's definitely out of the first leg. He might come back for the second leg because there's a there's a bit of a gap between, obviously. I, I find it difficult to tell. I, I, the one thing I think is worth saying is they were a good side last year. I mean, they got to the final and I thought they were the better team in the final. So we're not talking about PSG as in, can they, you know, can they really finally do it in Europe? I mean, they were a good team and I don't think Pochettino needed to change that much from last year's structure. And indeed, when Neymar's been fit, it's been a very familiar side from last year with the exception of Thiago Silva, who obviously is no longer there. But that just means Marquinhos stepped into the defence, which is his proper position. Otherwise, they're pretty familiar. And I think they could be quite forced. I'd, I'd make them favourites for this tie against Barcelona. PSG by numbers, Tom Warville. What stands out to you? Yeah, the key stat that we had for them was that they were the most fouled side in the group stage uh, during 96 fouls, which I think is equal to the number that Jack Grealish has got in the whole of the Premier League so far this season. And obviously that partly is going to be due to, to Neymar and with him missing or likely missing, you know, maybe that means that they won't be as as dribbly as um, as, as attacking um, through carrying upfield from deep. But um, yeah, I'm excited to see how, how they play. I mean, a lot of the data we have in the piece on PSG is obviously based around two core sides. Um, so I am uh, excited to see this Pochettino team and I have to be honest I haven't actually seen them at all under Poch yet so uh, yeah really look forward to, to this tie that sounds like a, a really intriguing tie you know actually you've given us information there but but I quite enjoy your uncertainty in some ways that makes me quite really intrigued and interested to watch that game um, Leipzig-Liverpool also on Tuesday night Michael we'll start with Leipzig with Nagelsmann as you've written in the piece, you sort of expect the unexpected. He's very hard to predict tactically, which is uh, 
well, quite troubling for you as a tactics writer, but enjoyable when you get to watch his teams play, no doubt. Yeah, I'm fundamentally biased towards uh, teams that are relatively predictable in their in their lineups, just so I can get a hang of them. But no, I mean they're a really good team tactically. I think they could really cause Liverpool problems. Actually, I mean they. The thing about Liverpool, and I, and I don't really buy the idea that they've been worked out, as some people say. I think it's, you know, there's other issues there. But I think Nagelsmann will obviously have had a really good look at them over a period of time. And I think will have devised something specifically for this game. What that might be, I don't know. I mean, he he likes 4-3-1, sometimes it's 3-5-1-1, which we saw certainly in the knockout stages last year. They're very good at rotating the positions. There was a, a game in the knockout phase last year where they did some great stuff on the right flank with, uh, the right wing back coming inside and, and the right sided central midfielder overlapping. I think it was Sabitzer and Lima at that point. But uh, in recent in recent weeks, they've done it with Tyler Adams, the young American. Uh, quite a few Americans actually in the Champions League knockout phase. Be interesting to see some stats on that. Yeah, I mean, I think they've got a really good chance here. Liverpool obviously not in a in a great state at the moment. And I think Leipzig are just really, really flexible. They can match the intensity of Liverpool. You know, whether Liverpool are playing with great intensity at the moment is another question. But yeah, I think they've got a chance to cause what would be quite a big upset here, I think. Tom, you watched Barnsley on Sunday and they play with great intensity and they play with an incredibly young side. And if that's what you enjoy watching, then Leipzig are the team for you in the Champions League, right? Yeah, definitely. I think obviously there's probably a, they're a bit higher, a bit better technically. But um, <laughs> yeah, there is there is that element of them where they're also the youngest side left in the group, uh, in the knockout phases, sorry. The average weighted age of their players on field was, was 25, uh, just over 25 years old which is actually joint with Rebel Salzburg as well which shows that there's a kind of consistent plan across that that group of clubs but also I mean yeah they they are hard to pin down tactically but personnel wise they actually use the fewest players in the group stages uh, as well with only 19 so um, I think we have a decent idea of who's on the pitch it's just where they're lining up and how their roles and responsibilities might differ but yeah they were kind of the highest pressing team in the group stages um, they weren't incredible going forwards they're looking at the, the numbers are kind of 10th for shots and 14th for, for quality of shots so went against my thoughts a little bit in terms of I thought they were, they were probably um, one of these sides that produced low volume, high quality chances, but definitely this game is going to be full of, of high tempo, full of pressing, full of running, uh, and probably you know more likely to be a, a very energetic and entertaining uh, affair. From one team that's hard to predict, Michael, to another that's probably slightly easier, not just tactically, but in terms of personnel, just because of the injury issues that Liverpool have. It's a lot of doom and gloom surrounding the club at the moment after three defeats in a row in the league and a, a title defence that is all but over already. What do you think are their greatest issues at the moment heading into this tie? Well, it stems from the lack of centre-backs. I know that's the obvious thing to say, but I mean, they're, they're without any. And and obviously that means they put Henderson and Fabinho generally in there. Their defensive record until the last couple of weeks was actually pretty good in the Premier League. They weren't conceding many goals, but there's been a knock-on effect in terms of how they win the ball back. I think in terms of how they use the ball in midfield. I think Van Dijk has been as much of a loss for his passing as his defensive qualities. I think there's then a secondary issue with with a bit of fatigue. I think the club was a little bit guilty this time last year of not rotating enough when they'd pretty much sewn up the title by Christmas. And I think we are starting to see a bit of fatigue from, from the four players in particular. They don't play with as much intensity as they used to. I, I think that's obvious. Tom has written uh, very conclusively that that is actually a pattern in the Premier League this year. Not many teams are... Well, I think only Aston Villa, when he did the piece, were pressing more than last year. So there's a few issues. And I think now there's probably a, there's probably almost a, another issue of, of not, not just mental fatigue, but th they don't have momentum. They're not winning games. There is a bit of doom and gloom around the club for the first time in a few years, probably the first time under Klopp, really. Um, and I think for a club like Liverpool, that is... I think more than other clubs, it's based on emotion, things like momentum, things like, you know, a big European night at Anfield. They do count for things um, and they can't depend on either of those things at the moment. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I fear for them. They've been a really, really good Champions League side over the last... Uh, the last three years, but I, I don't really rank them as one of the favourites this time around. Quite interesting this, Tom, because they're still actually, with the bookmakers anyway, heavy favourites to qualify. But in previewing this game, it's hard not to feel quite enthused by Leipzig and concerned about Liverpool. Have, have you got anything that you can add on top when it comes to Liverpool? Yeah, I just feel it kind of 
for Liverpool, this tie kind of lives and dies with how they decide to set up a midfield because of the intensity of, of Leipzig. They just really need to ensure that they have that balance in there and you can probably expect to see um, you know, Wijnaldum will be in there. I've, I've been intrigued to see whether it's it's Curtis Jones in there with him and Thiago. I think that that is a really interesting one, whether Kabat gets thrown in at the back and, and Henderson can move back into midfield. I just feel that the amount of pressure the rest of the team will be under is just so important for this team to use the midfield to disrupt and move the ball around the field. We know who the attacking players are going to be. We know who the fullback's going to be. We know who one of the, the centre-backs are going to be. I think it very much lives and dies of how you control the game in the middle of the park um, and whether Thiago can... I don't know. It feels like in recent weeks he's probably got some stick or maybe he's not been as good as we'd expect, but I think that this is definitely a good stage for him to to show that he is a, a good Liverpool signing and he has been worthy of, uh, of the investment. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Yeah, and the exciting ties come thick and fast. On Wednesday night, Sevilla against Dortmund, uh, not only two great destinations for a European football weekend trip, but also, Michael, in Sevilla, aside in brilliant Nick, having won five on the bounce in La Liga, what's their tactical style under Lopetegui? I think they're a really good side, first and foremost. Uh, the tactical style, it's a bit of a hybrid. I think they can control possession at times, but they're also very good on the counter-attack. I think over the years, Sevilla have, have seemingly produced a lot of great wingers and they play with with a lot of width here. They switch the play well. They've got wingers who can come inside, but also fullbacks who overlap. I mean, one of the great wingers, as I just mentioned, would be Jesus Navas, who's now a, a right back and actually a very good one. The, the interesting thing really with them is um, Ennisari up front, who's who's kind of, he's just having a great season. He's, he's having one of those seasons where I'm not sure it will be sustainable. I'm not sure how well... He will continue this in, into uh, the next few seasons. Might not be at Sevilla. I think he's linked with the West Ham very strongly at the moment. But uh, I remember having a chat with Tom a couple of years ago, well, a couple of months ago, I should say, about articles we could do. And one of them was, we suggested, was finding the kind of last great poacher in European football. Someone who just scores goals, doesn't do anything else. I wouldn't quite put him in this category in Nazari, but he scored 13 goals and got zero assists, which <laughs> I think shows his style very nicely. He's a physical player as well, isn't he? And uh, I've certainly ha- seen it suggested that this this season that he's having, with all due respect, could be something of a hot streak. That he, that he wasn't necessarily considered this like innate goal scorer certainly before this season. But often it's a case of developing as a player and finding the right team, I suppose. Just quickly, Michael, there was a viral clip, wasn't there, a few weeks ago of, of Sevilla scoring a goal in a Copa del Rey game against Valencia. 37 passes or something astounding right from the very back playing through the press and and, and uh, just a magnificent piece of football uh, is that not necessarily what we should expect to see you know was that a, a little bit of a a bit of a red herring in a sense no not necessarily I mean I, I think that one of these sides I mean Lopetegui is a, a very good coach has, has often not been a great manager if you know what I mean I, I think he's great on the training ground maybe sometimes with the, the politics of situations he hasn't covered himself in glory but I mean he's one of these coaches who a little bit like Sarri I would say he quite likes drawing the press and then allowing his side to play through it quickly so you have this this blend of counter-attacking and possession football that is, it feels like a counter-attack, but actually the opposition haven't been attacking, if that makes sense. They've been pressing. So that could be interesting here in this game against Dortmund. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to watching Sevilla, actually. I think they're a good team. I think maybe a little bit like we've seen in um, the domestic leagues, this could be a little bit of a year of the underdog. I think not necessarily in terms of winning it, but I think in terms of this round, there could be a, a couple of upsets. And I'm, I guess they start this game as underdogs, certainly in terms of reputation in the last two years, because they're a Europa League side, really, aren't they? But I think they've got a very good chance of putting out Dortmund here. Tom, it's not that long ago that you got a bit cross on this podcast when you heard Arteta talking about crossing. But from a severe point of view, that's something that they do quite a lot. And 
more specifically that they do pretty well. It's an effective tactic for them. Yeah, like Michael said, they've got Jesus Navas on the, the right-hand side and Marcus Acuna on the, the left and they're crossing you know, for Sevilla more than any other side in the competition. And they also created 18 chances in the group stages, which is the most as well. So uh, there's another stat as well, which I think highlights perfectly what we'll probably see. And um, it's the fact that Sevilla had the second most shots in the group stages, but on average in terms of XG per shot, that was the lowest, like kind of 0.1 XG per shot and I think you have to highlight that's because of Suso is one of these players who loves to cut in and always try and kind of bend it into the top far corner uh, and invariably never really pays off so that's one thing to to look out for overlapping fullbacks kind of underlapping Suso uh, and then Lucas Campos as well who had a fantastic season last season scored 14 goals this year he's only got four domestically I think from about seven xg so he's been a, a little bit unfortunate but he's one who doesn't really strike me as a kind of out and out winger he feels like a I don't know a player with the physique of a striker who's playing out wide um, and yeah interesting to see where him kind of pop in the box and cut him from out wide as well um, and then yeah Luke De Jong up front as kind of fodder for Nasiri um, is a very physical striker who um, I think he scored the winning goal in the Europa League final last year and seems to be one who pops up with with important goals on European nights so uh, yeah intrigued to see him off the bench at some point in the tie too they're up against Borussia Dortmund Michael uh, actually some breaking news on the Dortmund front today with Marco Rose the current Borussia Mönchengladbach manager uh, set to join Dortmund as manager in the summer for next season uh, first and foremost though when we're looking ahead to this fixture what sort of shape are Dortmund in since Lucien Favre left in December? Uh, not great. Edin Terzic was his assistant, has taken over as caretaker, I guess was was hoping to do a bit of a flick and have a really good half season and get the uh, get the job on a permanent basis. I don't think there was much danger of that happening, to be honest. The results haven't been good. He's, he's put a lot of faith in Marco Royce, who's been playing as number 10 um, and hasn't been in great form. But they do have, they do have forwards who can just changed the game in an, uh, in an instant. We know about Haaland. Uh, Jaden Sancho probably had a little bit of a dip earlier in the season, but when I've seen him in the last month or two, he's been back towards his best. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not sure that they will dominate this game, but with those forwards, I wouldn't rule them out. Yeah, just because of the individual brilliance. But I think this is quite a, um, it's quite a poor Dortmund side by, by the standards of the last 10 years. And, and like I say, I, I do fancy severe to cause... A bit of a shock and put them out. Well, you've re- you've referenced their sort of recent history in the last decade or so. Tom, I still have very fond memories of Dortmund under Klopp swarming all over the opposition in the opposition's defensive third. But that, looking at the numbers that you've put in the piece, definitely not the strategy out of possession for this Dortmund side at the moment. No, not at all. I mean, Dortmund's PPDA uh, in the group stages was the 13th best, so showing that they weren't weren't really pressing opponents that high. Um, they looked to be more of a possession-based team and they kind of dominated possession most of the time with the, the fifth highest average. So, yeah, it definitely seems like a, a departure from what we'd expect from the, the kind of classic Dortmund size of yesteryear. Yeah, I think that uh, I'm probably agree with Michael here that this could be kind of the... the round uh, or the tie of the round where we could see an upset we have got another American Gio Reyna on the right on the left hand side even for Dortmund um, which would be interesting to see how he gets on uh, in this tie too and, and Michael Royce has always been someone who's been kind of blighted with injuries throughout his career and as Michael notes in the piece he's, he's kind of barely um, lasted 90 minutes in recent games as well so I expect to see kind of him changed out it seems that the the two defensive mids of Delaney and Witzel are fairly well set although Jude Bellingham um, he's been playing of late as well so yeah um, it's funny it just feels like a, a Dortmund side maybe that is just kind of waiting for the summer and waiting to get Rose in and really kind of kickstart things Yeah what do you think about the appointment of, of Marco Rose Michael what can you tell me about him? Yeah it feels inevitable another another very good coach from the German school I think maybe comparable to Nagelsmann big formation switcher clearly likes intense play and, and works a lot on on build-up play, which is maybe a little bit different from the kind of Klopp approach of a decade ago. I think the German school has incorporated a lot more of Guardiola's methods. Um, his assistant is Rene Marich, who has uh, been very prominent on Twitter in recent years. So I think a, a few of them know, a few of us know him through that method. There's actually a great interview with him uh, by Raphael Honigstein on the site, probably about a year ago now. But that's really worth checking out. 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, I, I do find the Bundesliga slightly frustrating in that Dortmund and Bayern do just seem to pick off the best coaches and the best players from the sides that are challenging them, which I guess is inevitable, but it does create quite a predictable league table. And it's also, you know, the same with um, Bayern getting up in Meccano. Why, why is it being announced now? It just almost makes half the season a bit of uh, afterthought, doesn't it? I find it quite frustrating. But yeah, it, it will be fun next season. But next season is six months away, isn't it? Yeah, I'm, I'm intrigued by Rose because it just feels like he's risen so quickly throughout the ranks in Europe. Um, I mean, he was Salzburg's under-18 coach in 2017. And just four years later now, he's, he's going to be moving to Dortmund in the summer. So it seems like he... You know he's obviously doing something right. I think he has a good track record for for player development, um, even in a short period of time. I think that he's also recruited fairly well as well. Rami Bansabani is is one player fullback for Munchen Gladbach, who I think was was bought fairly cheaply and um, has performed pretty well and puts up really really solid numbers for a fullback in Europe. He's still squeezing stuff out of Lars Stindl, who seems like he's been around uh, Munchen Gladbach forever. And I mean Marcus Turam, of course, as well, um, who was a an A signing, one that if you looked at the data a few years ago, you would have pl- plucked out as someone who was getting a lot of chances at a young age and was, I guess, quite raw and not the finished product. But he was a very, very serviceable winger or, or a striker. And now, you know, he's probably added another zero to his uh, to his price tag. Squeezing stuff out of Lars Stindl. What a phrase that was. What a wow, I can really picture it. Right, next up is Porto against Juventus. Really enjoyed reading your write up on, on Porto on site, Michael. Quite an interesting side. And and dare I say it, potentially under Sergio Conceição, possibly quite well suited to to knock out football. Yeah, I mean a little bit like with PSG earlier. I do find it difficult really to watch the the games in the Portuguese league of which I've, I've seen a couple of Porto this season and work out how that would transfer to, to playing against really good opponents. But yeah, the Champions League group stage, they, they lost first up to Manchester City and then kept five clean sheets in a row. Um, they're very compact. They're very well organised. They usually play 4-4-2, but for their second game against City, they went 5-3-2 and obviously kept a clean sheet. So maybe that's an option here against Juventus. I'm not completely convinced by Moregan to Ramey up front. They seem like the, the type of forwards who will be good in Portugal, but maybe not so much in the in the knockout stage. But yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing them. I just always enjoy watching Porto size. I think they always play very cohesive, very structured football. And I think Conceição is a good manager as well. He's been there quite a, quite a while, actually, by the standards of Porto managers over the last decade. So yeah, uh, this could be an interesting game. Tom, in terms of style of play, the numbers suggest that they're kind of at one end of the spectrum, depending on whether we're talking about build-up play or pressing. They tend to be at the extreme end, one way or another. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can see um, from the charts and the piece that they they definitely are a side that favours the long ball. They have a really high share of their passes, which are long. Barely any possession, barely any possession in the final third. Um, they're averaging 6.3 shots a game, so don't exactly expect maybe a lot of shooting from them but the shots they did have were of really really high quality as well so um, yeah I think for me arguably Porto are the most exciting side in the competition that are left because they're the sort of team which I just barely know anything about and don't really know much about any of the players in the squad or on the team sheet so I mean they're the only side left in the competition that aren't in the top five leagues um, so that's always uh, a bit of fun really yeah absolutely they're up against Juve Michael under Andrea Pirlo what's his Juve side look like what defines them? Yeah, they're quite interesting. They're probably more interesting than they are good um, <laughs> because their results have been inconsistent this season. I mean, the, the formation is interesting. It's, it's probably 4-4-2 without the ball, but it becomes more like 3-5-2 with the ball. So they have one fullback who pushes on and then the, the wide midfielder down that side will then move inside to become a number 10. It's often been Aaron Ramsey doing that. So that in itself, I think is quite interesting and they can vary it. They, they do it on one side, one game and then the other side, the next game. So yeah, Pillow, he's got some interesting methods. I mean, it's it's been a bit of a difficult first season for him. I mean, it's bizarre that he's in charge, really. He was going to be in charge of the youth team and suddenly got promoted after a few days. I, I don't quite know what he's doing in charge, but yeah, it's been difficult in the league. I'm not sure they're going to win the league for the first time since, what, 2011. But in the Champions League, I think they could cause some problems. I would expect them to get through this game. Um, and it's a very obvious bit of analysis. But Cristiano Ronaldo over the last decade has quite consistently, I'd say, been on a side that has been struggling in a game and has then scored a couple of brilliant goals to take his side through. He is, you know, maybe the best Champions League player we've seen. 
uh, without wanting to go down a very familiar debate. And I think, you know, with, with him in the side, Juventus can play on the counter-attack. Uh, they can cross the ball. They can play possession football. I think he's rejuvenated his game since moving to Italy, Ronaldo. He's, he's obviously the main man, but we shouldn't underestimate quite how much of a difference he can make. Lots of interesting players in this Juve side. Uh, Tom, Ronaldo and Morata up top. Of course, Dybala is still a, a magnificent player as well. Still Chiellini and Bonucci in the heart of the defence and, and Szczesny in goal as well. Uh, what about Juan Cuadrado, though? Because, I mean, the current Juan Cuadrado is very different to the one that we saw briefly in the Premier League with Chelsea. Yeah, it's funny. He's an, yet another on that list of kind of Chelsea flops who've gone on to have pretty decent careers elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, he, he was joint with Messi in the group stages for goal-creating actions, which essentially is assists, but also counts fouls that are drawn that maybe lead to to free kicks and goals, which are then scored, uh, free kicks and penalties, sorry, that are then scored dribbles, past players before a goal is scored, things like that. So it's a bit of a, a larger net, I guess, to give credit to players, um, to depending on what happens before a goal is actually scored. And he's done seven of these goal-creating actions. So yeah, he's having a really big impact down the right-hand side. I've always kind of enjoyed watching Quadrado. He feels like a very unpredictable player. And yeah, I think he's definitely one to watch. Um, very, very different from Danilo, who is uh, definitely a very defensive-minded fullback, um, although one who's far more capable of playing both on the left and right-hand side. So yeah, excited to see him. Morata as well this season is kind of, I think I've written about it before with, with James Horncastle fairly recently, that he's having a really solid career, both in terms of assisting and scoring. Um, so expect Ronaldo to be kind of the ultimate poacher and, and move finisher and Morata very much the kind of link-up striker. Atletico Madrid against Chelsea is yet another smashing fixture, I have to say. A really exciting tie, especially with Tuchel now in charge of Chelsea and the way that they've started under Tuchel. From an Atleti perspective, Michael, I mean, they're five points clear at the top of La Liga with two games in hand, what makes them so good? Yeah, they're, they're a really good team. I mean, they've they've completely changed system really from the Atleti we've seen for much of the last decade. Um, it's not four four two or some variation. It's three five two, probably three five one one with Joao Felix floating behind Luis Suarez. They look very rejuvenated. I mean, I've been amazed how well Luis Suarez has done. I know it's the common thing now to say what a mistake Barcelona made letting him go, but. I mean, he looks from his last legs at Barcelona. No one expects him to be this good, not just, you know, scoring goals, but running the channels, looking mobile, looking fit, looking motivated. I must say, I, people probably don't listen to this pod for betting tips, but Atleti are sixth favourites. They're 16 to 1. I find that staggering. They're the best team in Spain by a mile. Looking at the, the list, I mean, they're, they're better than Liverpool at the moment, no question. They're certainly better than Juventus. And PSG always a bit of an unknown because of the step up. But I mean, Atleti have such a good record of getting through two-legged ties. Simeone's the master in those situations. And yeah, more than ever, I think they are actually a really good football side. They're not just a team who try and be wily and sneak through. I think they're a football team who can outplay their opponents. So I, I really like the look of them. Um, and I think they're a, a very big danger to the... Um, well, I think Bayern and City are the outright favourites, but I would have Atleti in, in third behind them. Uh, Tom, Suarez does appear to have, I don't know, made a sacrifice to the XG gods of some sorts. 8.1 non-penalty expected goals in La Liga, 14 non-penalty goals. That's going to get you where you want to go, I think. Absolutely. I think that he's definitely having a, a great season and uh, probably brings out the best in Joao Felix as well. There's some great videos going around on Twitter not so long ago of just him creating chances for Alvaro Morata and if you had a more clinical finisher, he's going to start racking up assists. So, yeah, intrigued to see those two up front. Intrigued to see Thomas Lamar in midfield as well on kind of the left-hand side, which is something I didn't... I've never really expected to see, but um, it, I feel it makes sense. I mean, he's not the um, most dynamic player physically, speed-wise, and that's why kind of Yannick Carrasco is playing that that left wing-back role. But I think Lamar is really kind of nice, technically well-gifted player um, and adds a good level of passing in midfield. But yeah, I mean, th the biggest thing about Atleti is the formation has changed, but the game plan will be the same. They only scored seven goals in the Champions League group stages, which is fewer than um, all other teams. So it's going to be very much drag this tie, kicking and screaming to the 80, 90th minute and try and nick it 1-0. That's uh, what I expect Simeone to try and do. Michael, based on what we've seen so far from Chelsea under Tommy Tactics. This could be a, a real game of, of cat and mouse, one on a knife edge full of tension. Yeah, I mean, I think the pattern of the game is is pretty obvious, as Tom says. I mean, 
Chelsea have dominated possession quite clearly in every game under Tuchel so far. Yeah, I think they'll have the ball. They'll be trying to look for openings and Atleti will probably play on the counter-attack and for set pieces and be a little bit old school Atleti. Probably a clash of three-man defences. I always think the wing-backs are crucial. Uh, it'd be interesting to see who Chelsea use them. I mean, Hudson-Odoi, I think, has been very impressive as a wing-back and indeed as a, a kind of floating forward as well. Um, but Carrasco for Atleti, uh, I think, is in big games this season has been really good, particularly in the win over Barcelona. He was basically playing as a fifth defender and then almost the most prominent attacking threat going forward with his real surging runs. So, yeah, this is this is a really interesting game. Like I say, I'm, I'm a big Atleti fan this season. I think that they're, they're looking really good. So I would have them favourites to go through from this one. Tom, what have you got to add on Chelsea? I sort of feel like any group stage data that you could throw at me feels almost irrelevant now, given how much things have changed in such a short space of time since Lampard left and Tuchel came in. Yeah, I mean, what we see in the data is that they were very direct for Chelsea in the group stages, which was something of a surprise. Um, they they were kind of about average for possession and possession in the final third. Um, so I would expect those things to kind of change around. I think that Chelsea will, will dominate possession far more and their data in the knockout rounds versus group stage will be uh, entirely different. And they're also uh, below average in terms of pressing, which uh, I'm intrigued to see how that changes uh, as well. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Lazio against Bayern. Michael, for Lazio, it's the first time in two decades that they've reached this stage of the Champions League. Certainly good to have them back for memories of that team from the early 2000s. And the manager, Simone Inzaghi, was playing up top then. What's he like as a manager? What's this Lazio side built on? He's a very good manager. And I must say, I never really liked him much as a player. I never really understood what he was all about. But he's a very good manager. They play 3-5-2, maybe 3-5-1-1. A little bit similar to Atleti in that respect. Uh, maybe a different game plan. They play some really nice possession football, lovely midfield patterns. I like the uh, the fact that both Milinkovic Savic and Luis Alberto play in the midfield. That's a very attacking tilt. Um, I watched their game against Inter on Sunday night. They were really unlucky to be 2 0 down. Uh, played some really good football. I quite liked Cherby popping up from left, uh, left side of centre back to get into the attack, almost playing the Jack O'Connell role for those of us who like Sheffield United. Um, I think they're the oldest team in Europe in the in the top five leagues. So uh, they, yeah, you can sometimes tell that. I mean, Lucas Labour's playing holding midfield. I mean, that kind of sums it <laughs> sums it up without wanting to be unkind to Lucas. Well, plenty of experience in the dressing room, albeit potentially not so much on this particular stage. They're up against Bayern Munich, Michael, the favourites to win the thing. They obviously last season romped to victory. They scored 18 goals this year in the group stages. Is the reality of Bayern at the moment under Flick as solid as my last sentence makes it seem? Yeah, they're pretty good. I mean, they've they've kind of been doing this thing where they haven't really been impressing, but they've been winning, which um, yeah has taken them clear of the Bundesliga in the at the top of the Bundesliga. Pretty similar side to last year. Thiago's not there. Kimmich has moved forward into midfield where obviously he's played many times before. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if they did have one game where they suddenly collapse a bit, just because I think that high defensive line, you depend upon such intensity. And if it drops off for even a minute, you can really suffer. That said, I think they're going to wrap up the league early and they'll be able to concentrate on the Champions League when it gets to the quarterfinal, semi-final stage. Probably only Manchester City are also in that position of all these sides uh, left in the competition. I, I, I'm excited about this game. I'll go out of my way to watch it. I think Lazio might be really impressive, but also lose the tie about 5-1, just because I think Bayern are really, really good at, at their best. I mean, numbers-wise, Tom, Bayern are very, very strong in basically any category, any metric that you could choose. Yeah, I guess apart from at the back, they conceded the the second most shots in the group stages and they were kind of the fourth highest quality on average as well. So uh, I think... 
defensively, they've not been the same this season. I remember we spoke about them on a, on the pod recently, and I think they're about um, ranked eighth or ni- eighth or ninth in the Bundesliga in terms of xG against per game. So that's one thing to look out for for sure. If uh, if Chiro Mobile and uh, Felipe Caicedo can actually cause them some damage, and yeah, that's the the one thing that will really hold them back from retaining their title this year. Atalanta against Real Madrid is another absolute cracker. Michael Atalanta, I think it's still fair to say that they're the neutral's choice. I think that is correct. You wrote during the group stages about their game against Ajax. It's one of my favourite of your tactical breakdowns. In it, you spoke about Atalanta's rotating diamonds, uh, but they come into this a diamond down, in a sense, with Papu Gomez having fallen out with Gasperini and left the club in January. I mean, can we expect more thrilling football from Atalanta up against Real Madrid? Yeah, they won't change their approach and they haven't changed their approach from last year. I think Papu Gomez is a big miss. Um, I think it's a bit fun game. Uh, yeah, the rotation down the flanks, like you say, will ask questions of Real Madrid and, and their capacity for their forwards to get back and defend. But Atalanta, they do play this very risky man-marking style. And I think some of the rotation from from Real Madrid and their attackers could cause problems. So, yeah, this will be a fun game. Uh, Real Madrid favourites. But I would love to see Atalanta cause a a bit of an upset. What makes them sort of stand out, I guess, Tom, in terms of their style of play, Atalanta? They definitely like to move it. Yeah, I mean, they attack with a lot of speed and they're the kind of quickest team um, in the group stages in terms of how quickly they move the ball upfield. Um, They pass fairly long. I mean, they were the fourth... Uh, highest team in terms of the share of passes which they they make which are long so um yeah i'm i mean i'm intrigued to see them play uh against real they're creating really high quality chances i think one player who could be quite pivotal in the tie although he won't start the game will be lewis muriel um who's having an amazing season off the bench so far i mean i put it on twitter a few weeks ago he's essentially just having a, a a substitution-based season for the ages. Um, he's scoring loads. He's he's not completed a game. I think he's completed one game in two years. Yeah, he's got 13 goals um, in about 670 minutes. So his average uh, per game is, I mean, it's over one goal a game. Um, and in terms of goals plus assists, he's averaging two per 90. So it's just the incredible numbers despite being a, a tiny sample. So if he comes off the bench, um, he's someone who has been really, really good. He just seemingly can't. Can't stay mm-hmm. fit. Well, I think in fairness as well, Duvan Zapata, another At- Atalanta striker, is also putting up some pretty uh, impressive numbers. I mean, in terms of just looking at FB Ref uh, and their new brilliant scouting report tool, non-penalty XG, 94th percentile in the top five Euro leagues as well. So certainly plenty for Real Madrid and their centre-backs specifically to sort of keep a hold of. Uh, Michael, on that note, there's still the, the sort of key personnel, I guess, both in the dugout and on the pitch in many ways for Real Madrid that have won this thing a number of times previously. What sort of shape are they in this year? Yeah, they're. Um, I mean, they've really suffered from injuries in the last couple of weeks, actually going back longer than that. But um, they've been a little bit more interesting than usual at times. I saw their game against Hitafe last week. Uh, Zidane used a very unusual system with Marcelo playing as the left wing back and drifting into central midfield and then Mendy overlapping him. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about Real Madrid. Uh, to be I've never been sure about them under Zidane. I've, I've been amazed they've won this competition three times. Probably only one of those years where they're actually the best team in the competition. The midfield trio is is the one, you know, it's a very solid one that we've come to to know uh, with Casemiro and Modric and, uh, and Tony Kroos when he comes back from injury. Uh, Benzema is key. I mean, he's kind of spent much of the last decade playing a, a kind of supporting role for Cristiano Ronaldo, but we're now seeing that he's a brilliant player in his own right. Um, I think they will need Benzema to have a extraordinary knockout stage to win this competition. Mm-hmm. But yeah, obviously start as the favourites for this game against Atalanta. They've had kind of an interesting relationship, Tom, with pressing this year, with, with how they with how they press teams in the final third. In terms of the numbers quite good but in terms of a piece that you and Dermot Corrigan wrote the other day not always that well structured not always that well organised yeah that was an observation Dermot made essentially saying that they seemingly don't have a a good structure to their pressing and if teams beat them they completely fall apart Um, which I think is is very much the case. I mean, they conceded the highest average quality shot in the group stages, and I think that's something similar that transcends across their league form as well. They're twelfth for for PPDA, which is the yeah, it's it's not great either. Um, it shows that they you know they aren't consistently putting a lot of pressure on the ball. But 
on the other side of things, they average the most high turnovers, um, which are essentially you're winning possession back in the in the final third and open play and that was the most joint with Man City on 36 so if they can pressure at the right times it's effective but I think that that press is susceptible to be broken and for Atalanta's diamond midfield and, and wing backs they will be looking to to hunt and feast on that and um, yeah hopefully that's the way they're going to win the tie eighth and final tie to preview in this epic round of 16 preview with Michael Cox and Tom Warville Borussia Mönchengladbach against Manchester City we'll start with Gladbach and that man Marco Rose already referenced in this piece current Gladbach boss future Dortmund manager uh, Michael how would you explain to me what Marco Rose has done with this Gladbach side that has caught the eye of Dortmund uh, what does this side look like yeah obviously we spoke about them earlier I mean very tactically flexible good at pressing good in terms of possession play lots of rotation in terms of the the starting 11 they're very hard to predict as Tom said Lars Stindl is very crucial for them the actual attackers I think it's a bit of a mix and match situation for different opponents. So it's it's hard to guess how they will play. And they do have a midfield duo who can command the game. I fear they might be a little bit pulled around here by Manchester City, who are in really, really good form, having been not impressive at all before Christmas. So yeah, of all the eight ties, this is the one I would be most certain of, uh, mm. of the result going one way. And Tom, uh, probably in keeping with his reputation as a, a dynamic, intellectual and, and studious young coach, is that Gladbach have an excellent set-piece record, very innovative when it comes to creating chances from set-pieces, that most wonderful of, of marginal gains, which is not marginal at all, actually, but very, very tangible. Yeah, definitely. I mean, they scored the most goals from set-piece in the group stage with four, but again, that whole old thing of context comes into it all four were against Shakhtar Donetsk uh, one game they won 6-0 the other they won 4-0 so definitely worked uh, in those ties but whether that again is something that they can use against uh, slightly better teams remains to be seen and Coxie they're up against Pep Guardiola's Man City is it 15 wins in a row for City they are the essentially the joint favourites with Bayern Munich those two are the ones to beat, I think it's fair to say. A lot of people hoping for a Bayern-Man City final, but there's a lot to come before that can be the case. I mean, it's a big question for a small space of time, but what on earth has Pep Guardiola done since that poor start to the season where we spoke about their tactical issues with Sam Lee on this pod to rattle off 15 games in a row without Sergio Aguero for the most part, without Kevin De Bruyne for the most part? I mean, what? What is going on there? Yeah, it's, it's been completely crazy, hasn't it, really? I mean, I, in terms of their improvement, I, I think the key thing to remember here maybe is, is the fitness issues. I mean, both them and Manchester United had slightly disrupted pre-seasons because they were playing in European competition late. And both Manchester United and Manchester City started really bad and have picked up in different ways. I mean, the way they're playing at the moment, I think, is as fluid a side as I've seen from Guardiola. Cancelo coming in from right back to be a a deep-lying playmaker, really, alongside Rodri in the middle. And that's allowed Gundogan to push forward and become the most prolific player in the Premier League over the last couple of months, which is incredible, really, when you consider he was uh, yeah, a really good all-round midfielder, but not really much of a goal scorer. And then we've seen great fluidity up front, like you say, without De Bruyne. They've, they've, they've been more, uh, I guess, more cohesive in terms of the creativity. Without Aguero and sometimes Jesus, they've played... Um, a very fluid system. Foden was up front really in the Liverpool game, was drifting around everywhere. Sterling and, and Mares and Bernardo Silva are popping up in the box as well. I, I think they're actually starting to look like a really, really good team. I mean, they're going to run away with the Premier League um, and that will give them a little bit of licence to maybe concentrate on these games, whether that's tactically in training and in preparation or rotating players for the Premier League game beforehand. So, Guardiola's gone a long time. It's going to be a decade, really. You know, only nine, only nine of those ten years will he have been actually competing in the Champions League. But for him to go that long without a Champions League victory is incredible, and I think they've got a very good chance of uh, putting that record straight this time around. Hey, Tom, let's finish with some clickbait. What would you say if I said to you, Pep Guardiola, best offensive coach in the world right now? Yeah, I think it just shows that possession is as much of an attacking tool as a defensive one. And, you know, you can't you can't concede goals when you have so much of the ball like City do. So I just think that City, you know, the way they defend is just not giving up the ball or not giving it up easily. They're counter-pressing really well this season. Um, I think the key to them is just, and I think Michael just mentioned it then, but they're rotating so well. They're a nightmare for 
for fantasy Premier League owners, but you've not seen that level of rotation with the likes of Liverpool, likes of other teams who, who are essentially in the title race as well. Um, and I think it's it's paid off really well. I mean, Joao Cancelo's not started every game. Carl Walker and him have kind of shared minutes uh, at right back. Fernando Inho's actually played a bit of defensive midfielder again to save Rodri's legs. We haven't mentioned Ruben Diaz yet, but he's been you know he's been a revelation for City so far this season in the way that these he's not a classic kind of really eye-catching on the ball defender he's he's more of a kind of physical defense first one but he's been fantastic and I can't remember the last time that Guardiola had a player like that in this system it just feels like for so long he would prioritize those who were tactically and technically excellent and um, defensively excellent goes uh, much further down the the list of things that he needs but um yeah I'm I'm really excited to see how City get on this year I mean they're kind of favorites for a reason and they're not even firing all, all cylinders I don't think Raheem Sterling's playing that well recently I don't think Gabriel Jesus is playing that well but the system as a whole is is working really well and I think that that is the thing that will win you games uh, in the long run brilliant well we have tried our best to give a Champions League round of 16 preview that is at the same time concise and detailed and that is podcasting nirvana is what we've approached there so hopefully listener you've enjoyed this michael and tom bringing the goodness as ever if you want to read the preview in written form the athletic.com forward slash zonal marking is where you can sign up for an athletic subscription for less than one pound a week really there's a half price offer at the moment on annual subscriptions and for those of you who are already subscribers of the site please do go and play the champions league quiz on the site at the moment. It's brilliant. It's very, very tough. I mean, do not be put off by the current top comment below the line on this piece, uh, on this quiz, I should say, which says, this is a really stupid quiz. Guessing missing semi-finalists, guessing finals locations, gave up after 12 questions. Utterly pointless. I reckon there's people listening here for whom guessing missing Champions League semi-finalists and guessing final locations is about as good as it gets when it comes to football quizzing. So head to the site now. We will finish off with some answers from my own teasers from the very top of the pod. Uh, Let's start with Tom's guess for who were the first two Englishmen to score in a Champions League final because I have a feeling Michael knows the answer and I want to give Tom a chance to get in front of it. I think you should go route one to Michael so I don't embarrass myself. <laughs> Coxie, you are the Zona Marking Podcast's resident quizzer. Who were the first two Englishmen to score in a Champions League final? Uh, I think Teddy Sheringham must have been first yes. with the equaliser in 99. And then the second one presumably is the next year, I think, is Steve McManaman. Teddy Sheringham in 99, Steve McManaman in 2000. Very good, Fletch. Very good. Uh, the second question is, in the 2004 Champions League final between Monaco and Porto, this was a bit wordy, wasn't it? Monaco had three forwards on the bench, Dado Perso, Shabani Nonda and one other. Perso and Nonda both came off the bench in this game, but the unused sub forward went on to have a brilliant career playing for four Premier League clubs and also for Real Madrid, but never appeared in a Champions League final. Tom, any ideas? I think it's Emmanuel Adebayor. Yes, very good. It absolutely is Emmanuel Adebayor, who I have to admit, did not know was on the bench for Monaco in the 2004 Champions League final. Coxie, did you get that one? Uh, I did get that one, yes. And I'm just looking at whether he was on the bench in the 2006 Champions League final. Uh, No, he wasn't. He wasn't, I'm afraid. No. Dennis Burkamp and Robin Van Persie and Jose Antonio Reyes were, but no Adebayor. Must have come the next next January, I think. Well, let's leave it there for this week's pod. Thank you both, guys, for a gargantuan effort putting together all this info on 16 sides that will form our round of 16 in the Champions League. I cannot wait. I hope you guys enjoy watching it as much as we will and hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast feed so that you can catch next week's episode and all subsequent zonal marking podcasts brought to you by The Athletic. Thanks for tuning in. We'll talk again soon. The Athletic.